uh, Charles was in charge of getting all the groups together this week, I think, and he wanted some uh, old men to sing. I think he might have actually said older. But uh, so I emailed my colleagues here and I said, I didn't really know any old men, but uh, would they help sing? So uh, we're going to sing two songs. The first one is uh, Wandering Child Come Home. Sometime, one evening this week, uh, one of the choristers led the song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And it has the phrase in there, uh, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And I don't know how many of you noticed that uh, those of us at the chapel, we've been cleansed from wandering. Uh, uh, John D. took those words out of his version of our songbook down there. <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> I'll confess to you, I still feel a little prone. And uh, I think there are two kinds of wandering. You know, when you turn your back and you wander far from God, you know, for years, there's the other kind of wandering that I feel every day when my thoughts wander and my focus wanders. And, uh, but there's a way back home from wherever you are. And, um, and whatever wandering you're doing, uh, you know, it helps if, if you come home every night and you leave home every morning. You can't wander but so far. So uh, let's all stay close to home. <clears throat> Wandering child, wandering child, oh come home. Child, come home. Child, come home. Child, come home. Wandering child, I long to roam. Is thy father's now in streets? Wandering child, Frail bark adrift on life's raging sea. Are you tossed on its billows and foam? There's a safe harbor home waiting now for you. Wandering child, wandering child, oh come home. Child, come home. Child, come home. Child, come home. Child, come home. Wandering child, wandering child.
time. Good evening, and I do appreciate those songs. I pray that we could go from here convinced that the message of those songs is good for us and good for everybody else that we know. There's a power in the gospel that uh, is there for everyone who, can, who believes. The final night always gets here, and it finally has arrived, and uh, hard to believe that. Before we go into the message, I would just like to say thank you for inviting us as a family and for uh, your hospitality and your uh, opportunity you've given to us. I, I told somebody I began this week with probably more concern and more fear and trepidation than most, but I'm finishing it, and it's been one of the better weeks, and I've really enjoyed being here with you, and I appreciate that. I think I know what I've said this week, 
but I'm not quite sure what you've heard. Uh, sometimes I've been quoted after a service, somebody would come and say, well, uh, this, you said this and this and this, and it really spoke to me. Well, I didn't really say that, but they heard it. And uh, I've been attributed quotes that I never said, but I think sometimes God does speak to us and point out things that are important. So I'm not sure what you've heard tonight or this week, but I would encourage you, whatever it is that God has spoken to your life, uh, the time is now to do something about it. We read that verse this morning. Jesus said, my mother and brethren are those that hear the word of God and do it. If you want an ongoing relationship with Christ, we need to be hearing and we need to be doing. Those two things form the foundation of a relationship with him. If we stop hearing and stop doing, we stop walking with him. We can't do it otherwise. But the time is now. You know, opportunities pass. Uh, windows close, and we remember them with regret. God forgives our missed opportunities, but they don't return all the time. The Spirit moves on. I think sometimes the Spirit speaks. If we resist it, and if we grieve Him, He's not forced to speak again, and He could pass on. And if we don't act upon what we hear, the urgency soon goes away, and we forget about it. Life ends sometimes. I believe dying with good intentions is worse than having no intentions at all. Dying knowing what we should have done and hadn't done it is worse than uh, not having made those intentions. There's many things we wish would have done yesterday. The best time to plant apple trees was 10 years ago. The best time to invest in land was 20 years ago. We all wish we would have done it. The best time to accept the Lord is way back when I first heard his voice, but here I am. The best time to make restitution is right after it happened, but here it is, so much time later. But here we are, and if it's still not done, today is the best day of the rest of your life. And we need to consider that and take opportunity there and, and make ourselves responsible. So whatever God has showed you this week, whether I said it or not, don't put it off. It's the best day you have. I had some goats in Guatemala, and uh, I would try to tie them up in my backyard. We had a fence around the back of the property. Sometimes I just let the goats go. They long since eaten my garden and grazed my trees, so it didn't really matter much anymore. So I'd let them go, and they'd graze and eat leaves and stuff down in the yard. What bothered my neighbor, because along the fence between me and my neighbor, he had a flowering vine, and this goat would stick its tongue through and, and pull things back through that woven wire fence. And he would mention it sometimes, you know, your goats, they come down here and mess with my vine. And, uh, yeah, I'll try to keep better track, track of them. And I would forget and let them go again. And, and uh, he got more and more bothered. And finally, he, I was sitting down for lunch, and he called me. He said, I want to meet you down by the fence. And he took me down by the fence. I went down there with sort of fear and trembling. And he pointed out some things. See here? That's what the goat did. See this one over here? And he looked at me straight in the eye and said, what are you going to do about your goat? And then I knew that if I didn't take care of my goats, nobody else was going to do it. And uh, if I don't get this done, I'm in trouble. So I tied them up. I built a second fence inside the first fence in case they got loose. So you need to read your Bible more or pray more. Get your goats tied up. If you uh, need to take care of a relationship problem or sin problem, it's yours to take care of. Uh, the consequence of procrastination is simply the next revival meeting comes around, nothing will have changed. You'll be in the same shape you are tonight. 
Somebody said, every day of delay leaves a day more to repent of and a day less to repent in. So take that with us. I'm blessed this week to be among you and see the connections that you have in your community. Each one has a circle of customers or co-workers or friends or neighbors or acquaintances. And I wonder how many people are touched by the lives of you people. There's many people around us that we influence and have at least some level of relationship with. And can you imagine the power of influence through all those connections and all those relationships and all that influence? And I'm thankful tonight for everybody that's here that's not a Yoder and not a, not a Good and not a, a Martin or whatever are our normal names, because everybody else that is part of our churches. Uh, somebody's been doing their job, and there's some places that have a whole variety of them, and that's great. I'm thankful for every visitor that's been here, people that you've invited and they've come and through these doors. Because I believe as believers, we have something that the world really needs. And Paul wrote this in Romans 1.16, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. Now, there's two things in that verse that, that bear upon our effectiveness today. One thing in this verse has not changed, it will not change. That's the power of the gospel. The other thing is subject to change. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Sometimes I wonder about myself. Sometimes I wonder about our conviction that this gospel really has power to change lives. We tend to sometimes think, uh, you know, this works for me, but it probably wouldn't work for these other people. Uh, they have their lives, seems like they have their lives together, and I'm not sure if if this would do much good for them. We, we're easy to be hesitant and cynical and slow to share. But our message tonight, I'd like to shift it a little bit and title it, The Power of Our Gospel. Now we have many needs, and many of those needs have been met. But many around us have needs that have not been met. And I believe that we are recipients of the gospel, yes, for our needs. We're also recipients of the gospel to be messengers and ambassadors and representatives of Christ. And uh, there's people around us that need that road back home. And I'm keenly aware tonight of my failures. People I should have talked to and should have influenced and didn't. People I should have prayed for and should have spent time with and didn't. Maybe misplaced priorities. Just a couple of weeks ago, I was getting onto the interstate and went down this ramp. And as soon as I was heading up, my wife was with me. I saw this lady on the ramp with, middle-aged lady with some suitcases. And she was sitting there waiting for a ride. And as one of those instant things, do I stop and help her out, pick her up, maybe have a chance to talk as we go? I wouldn't have done it except my wife was there. And I thought, no, I'm in a hurry and I've got to keep on going. And in that instant decision, I hesitated and the chance was gone and I went up the road. The worst thing was, I was going to preach some message at a missions weekend. And all that weekend, I lived under, the, under that personal sense of failure that I missed the chance. And uh, we often miss opportunities because we don't expect them. We're not looking for them. Failure stings. We remember them for a long time. And I believe that's why Paul says, be ready always to give an answer, be instant in season, out of season. I believe when the day of reckoning comes for us, it'll be a day of rejoicing. It'll also be a day of regrets. Uh, Missed chances, opportunities. 
I believe today, after 1,900 years, the gospel still has the power to change lives. Now, Jesus told a parable uh, about the sower that went forth to sow. Now, the focus of this parable is on the soils. It had four types, the rocky type, the hard-packed road surface type, the weedy, grassy, thorny type, and then the good soil. And the focus was not on the, soil, on the sower necessarily, but it was on the soils. And as you face people, there are uh, many people, and you cannot discern often what's behind their eyes, what's behind their faces. We look at people and see a smile. We see confidence. But you don't know what's hiding behind that confidence. Uh, many people that are broken up inside and hurting inside and longing know how to cover it up and uh, get along in life okay. But in that, sower is a, in that parable is a sower. And I guess in this case it could have been Jesus or it could have been anyone that had a message to give and truth to share. And uh, uh, I don't think it would be out of the way to, to see ourselves in there. I, some people use gospel tracts. Some people use gospel CDs. Um, and I believe that's a biblical method. I think God can use that. Last spring I had a bear patch in my yard and so we got this cranker out and put it on my shoulders, put some grass seed there and every time you go over a bear spot you just crank it and cover it up with seeds and, and a few of them might grow. Um, I believe that's the biblical method. I think people come to the Lord that way. There's a, there's a story of a man in Nicaragua who found this Bible or Christian magazine on the street and picked it up and saw a story there that so reflected his own life and it looked like it could have been written about him and it broke his heart and convicted him and his life began to change. Uh, other people have received the Lord that way. We need to be crankers. Not cranky, but crankers. We could be out there and, and sharing the gospel with people. And, uh, but what I want to focus on tonight is something a little bit different. As we are going about cranking, and sharing the truth and being a light and a witness. A frustrated, angry person can pass out tracts about as good as a godly one. A self-centered, lustful person can also share about how much he loves the Lord. A spiritually careless person can preach a good message and give a good testimony. So I don't want to minimize our responsibility to share the gospel, but I want to emphasize something that I believe is equally important as we go out and live our lives and... Uh, I'd like you to think about that as you go into this week. And there's a principle I'd like to share this evening that, that starts with a biology lesson. Uh, we're in spring and the flowers are popping all around us. It's a beautiful time of the year and I don't know, I like them. The apple blossoms, cherries, uh, I guess grapes blossom sometime, and grasses. And we love them because they smell good and they look attractive and they, they're beautiful. But biologically speaking, the only reason for a flower to exist is to produce a fruit. And uh, you have a process of pollination, where the pollen from the male flower uh, pollinates the female part. Then you have the pollen tube that grows down to the ovule, or whatever the term is for a flower. The pollen is carried many ways, by wind, by insects, by birds, and it, it gets the job done. Then you have fertilization. The pollen goes in there and fertilizes that flower. And when the, when the fertilization process has happened, the petals start falling away. And the only thing left of that flower is, is the ovary. And that's what begins to swell and grow and turn into a fruit later on this summer, an apple or a peach or something. 
And uh, if you look at the bottom of an apple, that little brown thing on the bottom is what's left of the flower back last spring when it started to grow. And all summer we're looking at this apple and we take care of them and we might prune them and we might thin them and this thing is growing and getting nicer and we're looking forward to taking that first juicy yellow delicious bite at the end of the summer. And I love fruit. Uh, crisp apples and sour cherries and sweet peaches and all those things. But biologically speaking, the only reason for a fruit to exist is for a seed to be produced inside it. That tree benefits nothing from the apple fruit, but it's the seed inside that's the concern. And inside that swollen ovary is an ovule, and that's what begins to grow seeds, and they're maturing all summer, and the fruit surrounds it. And uh, later on in the summer, we have pokeberries everywhere, and the birds eat the pokeberries, and, and those pokeberries and the seeds inside them are scattered all over the countryside. Uh, they might grow. The apple that grew all summer and has a seed inside it, you could take it with you to your deer stand and eat it and throw the core away, and maybe, just maybe, the seed inside would start to grow. Cockleburrs, you walk through the grass and they stick to your pants and your shoes and you take them somewhere and you pick them off and drop them down and maybe, maybe those seeds will grow into another one. Now why did God do that? That's the principle behind flowers and fruits. Fruits or Flowers are for fruits and fruits are for seeds. There's a creation principle back in Genesis 1 verse 12. And the earth brought forth grass and herb yielding seed after his kind and the tree yielding fruit whose seed was in itself after his kind and God saw that it was good. And everything that has life, physical life, either reproduces or dies out. Uh, it has the power to recreate itself. They say that a female mammal, soon after conception, has all the egg cells in it that it'll ever use in all its life because reproduction in the natural world is so important and so vital. Uh, the mark of maturity in a plant or an animal is the ability to reproduce. That's how maturity is marked. And we said this morning that each believer is a branch on a vine. We're placed here for a reason. God puts these branches and these members in the body as it has pleased him. And we're there for one reason. And Jesus said in John 15, verse 16, You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. Think about that in the context of a vine and put yourself in the place of that branch or maybe that vine. And there was a time in your life your branch was young and tender and green and it was just fine for then. Maybe you had one leaf and that was okay for then. And then you stretched out and grew longer and broader and more mature and more robust. And that was fine for a while. There comes a time when God expects something else of our life. And leaves are not enough and beauty is not enough. He wants to see fruit out there growing because that's the evidence of divine life in us as believers. And the fruit that you bear is evidence of, of your relationship with Christ, the product of your unity with Jesus. If you study Galatians 5, it talks about the fruits of the Spirit. There's love and joy and peace and forgiveness and all these things that happen as a consequence of my relationship with Christ. 
And uh, it's, it's the result, and we should have talked about this week, I guess, but it's a result of, of God's Spirit dwelling in your spirit and this fruit being produced out of your life. That's a fruitful life. And the outworkings of that are produced in a myriad of different ways and different circumstances. It's God's character being born to your environment because of who you are and your relationship with Him. When somebody wrongs you or tries your patience or takes something from you, makes demands of you, that's when God's nature becomes evident through your responses and through your life. And all week, I don't doubt that this church and these people here are watched. When you go to town and when you go to work and when you go on vacation or whatever it is, people look at you and say, hmm, that's unique, that's different. The way they dress and the way they act, the way uh, their children act and... Uh, But all week, and what the people around us hear, they're looking for something. And they see it in one person, the patience. And they see patience in another person. And long-suffering. And joy. And, and satisfaction. And contentment. And peace. And these things come out of a life over here. They come out of a life over there. And people start connecting the dots. Why is it that these people produce such things? And ideally, and this this is a result of maturing in Christ, but ideally they could inspect your life and your life and your life and find the same fruit growing in each life as we face things and as we deal with issues. Because the same Spirit producing these things in us. Now, I've sometimes wondered what the fruit is for. Here Jesus says that we can bear fruit. The branch doesn't need the fruit. It validates us as belonging to the vine, we bear fruit. I don't necessarily think the vine needs the fruit, although it does glorify Him, when in this world we bear fruit that looks like Christ. But when the world around us sees it, it's a testimony to them of what can happen when a person abides in Jesus Christ and lives out of that relationship. In our culture, godliness is a unique fruit. People need to see it. And they need to see that this is not just a culture. This is not just a tradition. This is a living relationship with Jesus. It's not just outward appearance and a certain way of doing things. This is a result of heaven's influence in your life. And that's what people need to see and get a concept of. But here's the, the crux of the whole matter. In every fruit is a seed. In every seed there's a potential for life. And every action that the Holy Spirit motivates into your surroundings and your environment carries with it the potential to soften a heart, to plant a seed, to bring forth life. And there's a reason, Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. I believe that a good part of fruit bearing is seed producing. And as people see and experience this testimony, it can be a, a little seed with the power to germinate in their life and grow. There was an older missionary in Guatemala for years, well not years, short time actually. He came down there fairly elderly and he did not know Spanish. And uh, he loved people. He liked to smile at people. And he was placed about a half an hour away from the mission at a place there's no other missionaries. And he lived there and there's a back road and uh, right out there by the institute. Some of you know where that's at. And as people would go by in the morning on the way to work, he'd go out and meet them and shake their hands and 
smile at them and say buenos dias and best he could and pass out tracts. And when they'd come home from their fields, he'd be out there again relating to them and he would loan them books and you know, be friends to them. And the neighbor family lived just down the road from there. He would invite them into his house to play dominoes and he would uh, play dominoes with them and they'd try to get along and understand each other and the children loved him. And the very first Sunday, he brought a car full of people to church. And the second Sunday, he had to borrow a van because the car wasn't big enough to take the people to church. And the third Sunday, he had to get a bigger van because the first one wasn't big enough to take all these people to church. By the end of the first three months that he was there, when he left, this family down the street, many of them had become believers and were in instruction class. And uh, some of them are still faithful today. Now you would ask, how do you explain that? How can a person that doesn't even know Spanish accomplish in three months what some of us struggle for years to accomplish? Well, I believe that one part of that is that love is the fruit of the Spirit, and in love is a, is a seed that can plant and grow in a person's life, and God can bless and nurture and water that. They can grow into something beautiful, and that's what happened there. I didn't see this story. I heard it. There was a brother there, a, a, a missionary brother who uh, was at a church function and he got his, his plate of food at the carry-in dinner and carried it outside and looked around for a place to sit and sat on the grass over in, by the building. And a national brother said later, it was seeing him go over and sit down on the grass that something about that reminded me of my need for Christ. And you would say, what, what kind of connection is that? Seeing somebody, that's so simple, that's so obvious, that's so uh, small. But humility is a fruit, and in that fruit carries a potential to change a person's life. Every believer has this inborn desire for fruit bearing. I believe one of the most frustrating things is a fruitless, barren life, and to live a life that does not contribute to the kingdom of God and live a life that does not influence people is a recipe for frustration. And often we're dissatisfied and we resort to bickering and other problems the cry for fruitfulness is Rachel's cry. In Genesis, she said to her husband, Give me children lest I die. And that should be our cry, our desire, that we could be fruit-bearing Christians, influencing and helping the kingdom of God. As we face the challenges of outreach, and uh, community work or missions or wherever we are, home or abroad. We need to bear in mind something that Paul wrote. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Now here in Gladys you have a boys club, I think. You have contacts, I think, and relationships with people, and you're concerned about friends, and you're looking for ways to influence people. But when you face the challenges of summer Bible school or relate to a neighbor that's going through a difficult time or maybe a divorce or a loss of a child or you're in a prison ministry or you're uh, in whatever mission work you are, we need to realize that we're engaged in a spiritual struggle and to relate to it in any other way is a recipe for ineffectiveness because as we go about meeting people, we need to realize what influence they're under, what influence I'm under, and the mighty clash that happens between good and evil at that point. And that's why Paul wrote about this. We don't struggle against flesh and blood. 
We're struggling against something higher and beyond what we can see. And that's why he wrote also in 2 Corinthians 10, 4, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. And we have a tendency when our zeal is stirred and our emotions are aroused about this thing, we tend to start thinking about new methods. What can we do to generate more support? What can we do to stir up new interest? How can we draw more people? What can we invent to stir things up? And I think there are many practical aspects to reaching our communities and living among them and sharing with them. We need to pay attention to that, but also suggest that this is not necessarily a matter of better funding or better organization or better methods. The real battle continues to lie in the spiritual realm. As we face people and their needs, it's good versus evil. It's Jesus versus the enemy. That's what's clashing. And we're members in this, this battle. I'd like to take you to 2 Corinthians tonight and read a couple of things that help me understand the whole picture. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12 through 15. Seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech, and not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. But their minds were blinded, for until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their hearts. Now the light that reaches the world has one source. The light that your neighbors need to see is Jesus' light. There's nothing about my charisma or my ability or my personality that can change a person's heart. It's the light of Jesus that has to do the work. And uh, Moses came back from speaking to God after 40 days in the wilderness, and his face was shining to the people. And Stephen, when he stood before the council, he looked at his face and it was shining as the face of an angel. And I believe that at least symbolized what can happen when you and I spend time in the presence of God. There's something about our life that people can tell when we've been with Jesus. It should make a difference. Now when Moses came back with his face shining and glowing, he took something and held it up over his face so that people could stand it. They didn't want to look at him with his glowing face, so he covered it. And they chose not to look on that glory. And Paul makes that application here of this veil is upon the heart of Israel even to this day. This is his day. I guess in large part it still is. But something was keeping them from the truth from that time onward, even when Jesus had come. They're keeping them in darkness. Now I'd like to go on over to 2 Corinthians 4 and read the first four verses of that chapter. Therefore, seeing we have had this ministry, as we received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. I'd like to make something clear here. We often look at saved souls and commitments of people as as success in our work. And we love to see it when people are broken and people are repentant 
and they're committed to the Lord, it makes all the difference for us. And I believe if we could have one of those a month in our churches, we would be excited about things. But sometimes I think that the first goal, and probably the more realistic one, can we at least bring people to an informed decision? Can we bring them to a place where under conviction they can make a choice to either follow the Lord or not follow the Lord? Uh, even Jesus, even Paul, did not bring all their people, all their contacts to the Lord. They didn't do it. But at least they were involved in bringing them to a decision point. And we could look at our lives that way. As we face people and meet them, we would hope that by seeing the gospel lived out and hearing what it's all about and understanding it through our lives and example, they would be forced to make a decision. Am I going to follow Jesus or am I going to resist and ignore him and go the other way? At least they've made that choice. But when this happens, it's frustrating. We talk to people, we're around people, and it seems they just never sense conviction. They never feel the need. They never are brought to a decision. They go along through life just nonchalantly and happily and, and uh, flippant and careless. There's no sense of urgency or conviction. I believe the conviction can only happen when light shines into their hearts and into their souls. I believe the biggest barrier to the gospel is not cash, is not methods, uh, it's spiritual veiling of the gospel. There's something of a blockage between the light that should be in us and the light that needs to reach them. There's something of a barrier there, a veil there. Now where is that veil? If you look at this passage, we could, uh, we could find it in possibly two places. And it's obvious to us from 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4 that Satan's work is specific to try to confuse and blind and, and uh, shield people from light. Just keep them there in the dark so they never have to make a choice, never have to make a decision. And he uses misunderstandings and misinformation and he uses prejudice. He can fill people's minds with a narrative against what the gospel stands for. He can fill their minds with, with disinterest, uh, give them a lack of understanding. Now, how did Paul handle this? He knew this was true in the people he was dealing with, and he says, I'm cleaning out my inner life, and I'm commending myself to their conscience in the sight of the Lord. Not doing anything deceitfully. I'm just cleansing my inner life. I'm being as honest and transparent as I can and commending myself to their conscience. See, beyond just the uh, contact, Christ, beyond just through the workings of a conscience, than they do through the workings of logic and intellect. Nothing pricks a conscience like a pure life, to see it lived out in a pure way, and to see themselves beside it. Now that's the first place the veil lies across the mind of the unbeliever. What about in the life of the believer himself? What about at its source? I believe the biggest veil to the gospel, there's other scripture we could look at about this. The biggest veil to the gospel on my side is uncrucified flesh, unbroken will, unsurrendered life. When people see that in the believer's experience, that's just like a thick black veil pulled over the gospel that will never shine out. I met a young man one time that said he's interested. This is a Guatemalan young man. 
interested in missions. He's interested in going to serve the Lord somewhere. What would I say about that? And I knew this man. He was an uh, energetic man, quite talented. He's a young guy. He was willing. He was hardworking. But as I thought on his life, it made me want to just shake my head a little bit because I knew his anger struggles and his moral struggles and his relationship problems. And my fear would be that he would go into all the world and preach energetic messages and pass out tracts, but simply give out a display of unbroken flesh. And it would not attract people to the gospel. It would turn them away from it. And we go into all the world or into our backyard with a cocky attitude and unbroken will. It's like a veil pulled over the power of the gospel right here. I don't believe the message of the gospel is ever independent from the life that lives it. As we go about, we carry a message that's spoken and we carry one that's lived out. And if there's a contradiction between the two, that's not a situation that draws people to the Lord. Now this, this does not replace the method. We still can sow, we still can talk to people, we can still witness but I believe this understanding helps enhance and empower the message in ways that uh, an unbroken life would hinder. There's a couple of things I'd like to talk about yet. There's a fish in Guatemala that uh, is an interesting example of what I want to say. It's called cuatro ojos. It has four, it's called the four-eyed fish. It lives on the top of the water, and its little eyes stick out the top. As it swims around, it's equally aware of what's going on underneath and what's going on up top. And I tried for a long time to catch them. I would try fish hooks, and I tried throw nets. I even tried slingshots, and I never get close enough because they were so quick, and they knew what was going on around the banks just as good as they did what's underneath. And so I never did get to study one up close. And uh, as believers in a physical world, we also deal with spiritual realities that have a direct influence on what we're facing here. And I believe there's some spiritual dynamics involved that can either hinder or enhance our uh, efforts as we go about spiritual work in a physical environment. And uh, if you look at Zerubbabel as an example, he faced a huge task. He was supposed to take 42,000 Jews, bring them back to Jerusalem, make one nation out of them, rebuild the wall, and, uh, or build the temple, restore the worship, now there's this vision given to a prophet. You go tell Zerubbabel what you see. There was an olive tree and there was a candlestick in the center and it was standing there receiving the oil that was poured out and the lights were burning and uh, it was like God was saying, not by power, not by might, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. It was not going to be about Zerubbabel's efforts as much as his ability to continually receive from the source and out of that strength and out of that relationship, get done what he was called to do. It was not by his efforts as much as what God would do there. Look at Moses. The first great battle that Moses fought out of Egypt was with the Amalekites. And uh, he was on the mountain or the hill and his arms were raised and the battle was fought down below and he noticed that if he lowered his arms for a rest, Israel began to lose. If he kept them raised, Israel continued to prevail. Now what connection is there between what's going on on the hill and what's going down in the valley. The humanistic person said there's really no connection at all. There's no relationship between what's up there and what's down here. But those of us who understand 
that there is an authority and there is a blessing from the Lord. Intercession up here and authority up here makes a big difference what happens down here. We talk about spiritual dynamics. It's things that happen in the spiritual realm that have a direct influence on what happens in our environment. We need to be aware of that when we go about this, this work as we influence people. There's a few dynamics I'd like to point out as important. Make a big difference in the things that we go about doing for the kingdom. Whether it's church building or whether it's relationship building or influencing other people. I believe one of the first ones that we cannot ignore is the power that comes through a, a pure life. A life that's given over to the Lord and cleansed. I don't think there's anything that undermines or ruins the gospel message like a life that says one thing and lives something totally different. Nothing enhances like clear testimony and honest living and uh, pure things. And there's a danger when a Christian begins to think that his personality is like the magnet and his methods are the key. And what he does is more important than who he is. And that's when problems arise in our outreach efforts. 2 Corinthians 4, 7, we didn't quite read that far. It says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. What is that saying? All of us at our best are simply earthen vessels. And unless we're filled, we have not much value at all. But the power is what's inside it. And there's no outpouring of grace into an uncleansed vessel. There's no blessing of God or an impure life that's not willing to face things and deal with them. If you want the blessing of the Lord on your work, think about Jeremiah 15, 19. Jeremiah was called to be a prophet of God. And God told him these words, And if thou take forth the precious from the vile, thou shalt be as my mouth. How would it be if when you went out and spoke to someone, they would tremble as if God was speaking to them? If you would influence someone, they would break down weeping as if God himself had a hold of their heart. It would be a powerful witness. Well, here's one key at least. Discern our life. Cleanse our life. Take out of it that which is not pleased the Lord. Stick with what does. And I believe part of this promise could be applied. I believe a humble spirit has a lot to do with our influence on other people. We read this week, we talked about this week, that humility is a quality God loves and God comes to and God is attracted to. He dwells in eternity, huge and immense, but he also dwells with those that have a humble heart. I believe sometimes God walks a fine line with us. He would love to use us and bless us and reach people through us, but he loves a humble heart too much to waste it quickly and ruin it. And if he would take a person and dump out on him success and blessing and influence, and, and uh, he might start feeling pretty good about himself. And he might lose that very thing that God was able to use him through. And so often I believe what God does is uses us, blesses us, and then makes sure we're humble again before he gives us any more. And he keeps us walking in humility as he longs to bless our service to him. Jesus', Jesus donkey ride into Jerusalem is an interesting story. Somebody pointed this out one time, never forgot it. 
as he was uh, coming down to Jerusalem, this donkey had never been ridden before, and he was coming down the hill, and people were shouting and waving clothes and branches. And if this donkey would have acted like every other donkey ever acted that was never ridden before, the eyes of all the crowd would have been on this donkey, and Jesus would have been quite forgotten there, uh, sort of a victim of his circumstances. And it would have been a, big, a riot on the street. But he didn't. He just kept walking quietly, uh, taking Jesus where he wanted to go, and the donkey was totally forgotten, and the eyes of all the people were on the master. And it'd be a shame if we would go around in all the world, and the world would look at us as a bunch of kicking donkeys in our corral, and Jesus would not be noticed there. We want to be like, if you, I don't know if you ever wanted to be like a donkey before, but when it comes to this story, I do. Like a donkey. There's power in abiding in Christ. There's something attractive about a person that abides there in Christ. There's something interesting. If you look in Scripture about how to get these things done, Jesus did not hand us an instruction manual and say, you go out and do it this way. There's, there's indications there, but often he says, come unto me. Come and rest. Come and learn. Uh, come and abide. You stay with me. And that's probably one of the most key elements of influencing and reaching out and blessing other people, abiding in Christ. See, when we abide in the vine, the vine can abide in us. And that's how fruit is born. If you take one of these old-time lamps, you have the wick down in the oil, and the oil up in the wick, and that's how light can come to the darkness. Uh, success is not what I have to offer to the world. It's often the access that Christ has to my life. And that's what makes all the difference. And wherever I go, as I'm abiding in Christ, I'm a co-worker of Christ. Jesus points that out. Uh, we can work with him in the yoke. Jesus is still the winemaker. We're still the servants bearing that wine to the ones that are thirsty. Jesus is still the one that's breaking the bread. We're simply coming and taking and, and sharing. Jesus is still the treasure. We're simply the vessel of clay. And Jesus is still the master, and we're just the cult. And where do you want to go today? And I'll take you there. That's our relationship with him. Another asset, another dynamic that's so important is the asset of prayer. And I, we, don't need a, we don't need a doctrinal message on prayer. We realize what it's all about, but we often miss the importance. I was at a uh, revival meeting a long time ago down the town of Oratorio, a little, looked like a little old western town down there with horses in the streets and uh, pickups too, but it was a pretty hard town, uh, immoral, uh, young people that were quite lost, and we had a little church down there, and the church was not growing very much, quite small and quite uh, fledgling at that point, and uh, Dwayne Evie was asked to come down and share those meetings, and I was a single guy at that point. And he took a couple of us along down to help with prayer and visitation and inviting people. And uh, our schedule went like this. In the morning, we'd get up and have breakfast and have a prayer meeting. Then we'd go out and meet people and invite them to church and come back for lunch. And then have another prayer meeting. And then in the afternoon, Duane would get ready for the message that evening. And we would go back out on the street and invite some more people and visit around. And in the evening, we'd come back and have one more prayer meeting before church. It's a lot of prayer. I wasn't used to that at that point. 
And the week went like that. And there wasn't a lot of results that week. We ended the week and might have been a couple of responses, but nothing huge happened during those days. But what was interesting to me was what happened afterwards. Afterwards, our little church that was stagnant began to grow. And uh, it went from being one of the smaller ones to one of the larger ones over the next decade or so. And uh, they had some struggles today, but it's still one of the larger congregations. And not only that, we heard from other evangelical pastors in town, and they said, we're not sure what happened this week, but ever since, our work has become easier. Uh, people are more responsive, a little more open, a little more accepting. It's almost like through the efforts of many people that week, something of the resistance of the evil one cracked a little bit, and uh, some light shone through, and it made a difference. Now, it's still a hard town, it's still a closed town, but that's one thing that prayer can do. Have you ever tried praying for people where you work? If you're in town, if you're standing in the checkout line, you see somebody, you'll never get a chance to speak to them, but you can pray for them and say, Lord, I don't know what you're doing in that person's life, but I pray that today you would do something to advance your will and you would take them a step further in the plan and lead them to the place where that person can, can know you. One more I'd like to mention. This one comes out of John 12, verse 24. Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone, but if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Amy Carmichael, in trying to describe missions one time, said, Missions is a chance to die. It's a chance to take your life and pour it out. There's a big difference in putting in time and pouring out yourself. There's a big difference of giving your excess and giving yourself. You know, one of the greatest cries of missions today is long-term committed missionaries. It doesn't take long to get a two-week mission trip together somewhere. You'll have it full by the day after tomorrow. But what's very difficult is to get people to say, I'll go and I'll stay there for at least two years, if not four. Uh, it's a difficult thing to fill. But this is key. If we're not willing to let ourselves be plowed in to the work that Christ wants done, we're going to be largely ineffective. And I've seen people come and go with different attitudes. Some come and they're putting in time. They're there doing the work, but they're still connected with home and these electronic devices make it a lot easier. They're here, but their whole life is back there. And they're doing the work, they're doing the mechanics, they're doing the driving, but their thoughts and their heart is back home. And, uh, and I've seen others that come and just plow themselves in and get involved in people's lives and encourage and bless and pray and help. There's a difference there. I have a friend that's going to Iraq at the end of this month. And uh, we had him over for lunch last Sunday. And he was telling us what he's facing over there. He's going to be about... 15 miles from ISIS. And uh, it's not very far away from that controlled territory. And their group requires that the people that go uh, watch some beheadings and watch some burnings and watch some executions of ISIS. And he was telling us that the night before he was, he was watching the burning of this Jordanian pilot. It's a long, slow, painful death, and he had to watch that. And he said it's hard to get his mind wrapped around that because... 
He knows that if he goes, this might be him. He doesn't know which way the war could break out, which, uh, how, how safe he might be. But see, a person that goes with that attitude, seeing what might happen and going anyway, that's a pers- person that's in a position to let his life be plowed in and make a real difference in somebody else's life. Sometimes outreach work makes us feel cynical because there seems like there's so few results. And we try and we maybe stop trying. Maybe we just feel like it's not going to make, it, make a difference. Um, <clears throat> there's a story I love to tell. Maybe you've heard it before. But a couple of... One, uh, Rafael Segura was one man that was in Guatemala as a pastor... And during his life, he was moved from place to place, serving the Lord. And he, uh, one, one place he was, he was uh, in the town of La Supresa. And every week, he would hike a couple of hours up the mountain to a place called Pital, where he would try to hold services, invite people, and uh, try to win them to the Lord. And uh, during his time of trekking up and down that mountain, he faced death threats and dangers. But one of the people that responded was a man named Juan. And Juan was an elderly man at that point. And even after Ralph had moved on to another congregation, uh, Juan had stayed and become the, little, the deacon of that little church up there, a very small group. And he was up there uh, holding services and other people would come in to help. But now years later, this is a couple of years before we came home, about a year before, uh, Ralph's wife died. He was sick. His back gave him problems. His wife was sick. She was a diabetic. He was poor. He had been moved around from place to place, serving different churches all his life. And uh, here he was, stuck in a small church in the southeast, hot, dry corner of Guatemala. And he was somewhat a discouraged person at that point. He, uh... And then his wife died. His wife died and he was left by himself. And I was there the day he died. I'm sorry, I was there at the funeral uh, after she died. And Ralph was quite strong. He did not cry at her funeral, but he moved out of the house. He couldn't take it living there anymore and lived up in a little room by the church. You can imagine the thoughts that went through his mind after being moved around place to place. Now he's old and sick. His wife just died. And what was it all for? About a month after his wife died, Juan died. Juan was also elderly and sickly. and He was in the hospital the last two days of his life or so. And about three, days before, or three hours before he died, he was talking to his son. And he was telling his son different things he wanted people to remember. And one of the things that he said was, I want you to thank Rafael because many years ago he brought me the gospel. And uh, I can die today in peace because he came. And I was able to call Ralph with that story and share with him what Juan said about Ralph. Now, was that worth it? I think it was. I think it was, because I believe when Ralph gets there, Juan will be there. And uh, one of the things we can look forward to in heaven is meeting people that we've influenced for the kingdom of God. When your acquaintances die and the people you know pass off this scene, who will they go to? Who will they remember? I know another pastor that... uh, He has become the pastor of the neighborhood, even if they have other pastors, because he visits, he cares, he stops in. And when they die, they don't go to their church, 
When they're sick, they don't call their pastor, they call him. Because he's been there for them, and their pastor hasn't. Uh, that's when you can tell the impact you've made. Now tonight, we're not simply called to sow the seed, we're called to be the seed. Uh, it's less about what we say and more about who we are. And may God keep us from the sin of isolation and this seed that refused to be planted and kept itself to itself. May God make us like the one plowed under. And the most fertile ground there is, is the ground into which you are plowed as a seed and your life is lived as a seed. If you're called to be a shepherd, give your life for the sheep. If you're called to the classroom, fill your vessel and go in there. If you're called to be parents, let, let your children see Christ. If you're called to a workplace, let the ones around you taste and see what fruit is like when it's produced from a relationship with Christ. And may God bless you as a person, as a church, with a field into which to be plowed as we give ourselves to Him. May He give you fruit for your labors and power to your message and may from this place light shine in the community where God has called us to live out his life. God bless you as a church and as an individual. Thank you.